This is Word for Word, Public Radio's national speech series from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pencava. The Central Intelligence Agency was established in the mid-1940s to gather, as its name states, intelligence. But Tim Weiner says the agency has strayed from its core mission, plotting coups and assassinations abroad, spying on Americans at home, Weiner says, distracted the CIA from getting credible information of what was going on in the world. In his history of the CIA, Weiner writes that the agency was set on that detour almost from the start. Weiner notes that instead of passing along a tightly run spy network to his successor, President Eisenhower lamented that he was leaving John Kennedy with a legacy of ashes. In a recent speech, Tim Weiner said that legacy continues to this day, and it's that speech we'll hear this hour on Word for Word. A reporter for The New York Times, Tim Weiner has covered intelligence issues for two decades and won a Pulitzer for his reporting on national security. He is the author of three books, the most recent being A Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA. That book made one reviewer wonder how things might have been different if the CIA's own analysis had been as trenchant as Weiner's. Here, then, is Tim Weiner speaking June 3rd as part of the Minneapolis Public Library's Talk of the Stacks series. Sun Tzu, uh, the Chinese general, wrote 2,600 years ago uh, a marvelous book called The Art of War. And in The Art of War, he defined the task of intelligence in three words. Know your enemy. That's a short sentence, but it's a mighty tall task. And that is the core of the mission of the CIA. That mission really hasn't changed over the last 60 years. Know your enemy. Keep the president and the secretary of state and the secretary of defense uh, up to speed so that they can form a strategy for the United States, not for tomorrow, not for next week, but out over the horizon, a strategy, strategic intelligence. That was the initial goal. Uh, We haven't done strategic intelligence for so long that we we really don't know how to do it anymore. And to warn against surprise attack, to prevent another Pearl Harbor. That remains at the core of the mission today. Uh, As I look out over you uh, uh, tonight, I I surmise that some of you remember what it was like in the 1950s uh, when the CIA tried to get up to speed. I myself was born in 1956, so I had to reconstruct some of this uh, in my research for the book. And the fear of that era and the ignorance. We knew nothing about the enemy. We knew nothing about what was going on behind the Iron Curtain and the Bamboo Curtain. Fear, ignorance, and secrecy are a powerful, combustible cocktail We're reminded of that today. (laughs) But let's go back to 1954. President Eisenhower commissioned the first of a series, an almost unending series, of private, secret, presidential investigations into the CIA that year. This was the first of them. It's known as the Doolittle Report, after it's uh, the chief investigator, Jimmy Doolittle, who some of you remember uh, led the firebombing of Tokyo in in World War II. I'm going to quote from it. These words, uh, some of them, weren't declassified until 2001. It is now clear that we are facing an implacable enemy whose avowed objective is world domination by whatever means and at whatever cost. There are no rules in such a game. Hitherto acceptable norms of human conduct do not apply. If the United States is to survive, long-standing American concepts of fair play must be reconsidered. We must develop effective espionage and counter-espionage services, and we must learn to subvert, sabotage, and destroy our enemies by more clever, more sophisticated, and more effective methods than those used against us. It may become necessary that the American people be made acquainted with, understand, and support this fundamentally repugnant philosophy. The report goes on. 
we must develop an aggressive, covert, psychological, political, and paramilitary, palimir, sorry, paramilitary organization, more effective, more unique, and if necessary, more ruthless than that employed by the enemy. Any of this ringing true? Any of this apply today? The report goes on that the CIA, quote, and this is part of, of what was not declassified until after the turn of the 21st century. The CIA has never pro solved the problem of infiltration by human agents. Once across borders, those would, would be the borders of the Iron Curtain and the Bamboo Curtain. Once across borders by parachute or by any other means, escape from detection is extremely difficult. The information we have obtained by this method of acquisition has been negligible and the cost and effort, dollars, and human lives prohibitive. One of the things I discovered in researching this book was that the CIA sent thousands of recruited foreign agents, Russians, Balts, Slavs, Ukraini Ukrainians, Czechs, Chinese, Vietnamese, Koreans, by parachute out into darkness over those borders to try and hook up with usually non-existent resistance forces. No one came back from those missions. Thousands died. And this is one of the CIA's deepest secrets and remained until recently one of its deepest secrets. And President Eisenhower came to understand this, uh, not directly because Alan Dulles, his director of central intelligence, didn't tell him this had happened. The CIA needed to project an image of success in the 1950s. It was a fledgling organization. And knowledge and understanding of what had actually happened on its missions to try and know the enemy would have destroyed it. The last of the many private presidential investigations that Eisenhower commissioned reported back to him in January 1961. This was uh, just the week before he warned Many people remember this speech. He warned the American people against the disastrous rise of misplaced power in the military-industrial complex. I think you all remember that one. So the, the final internal report he commissioned called for, and I'm quoting, a total reassessment of covert action by the CIA. Quote, we are unable to conclude that on balance all of the covert action programs undertaken by CIA up to this time have been worth the risk of great expenditure of manpower, money, and other resources, i.e. human life, involved. The report warned that CIA's concentration on political, psychological, and related covert action activities have tended to distract it substantially from the execution of its primary intelligence-gathering mission. This was always the problem for presidents. The first job was to know the world. Presidents get frustrated with that. It takes time. They want to change the world. Sometimes they can send in the ambassador. Sometimes they can send the Marines. In between those two courses of action, they sent in the CIA. It was in these days, the final days of his presidency, that President Eisenhower exploded in frustration at Alan Dulles, his director of central intelligence, for his failure to coordinate the overall intelligence activities of the United States. It was then that he warned that he would hand to his successor, John F. Kennedy, a legacy of ashes. And four months later came the Bay of Pigs. Ike was right about that. I have to say parenthetically, what I learned, one of the things I learned writing this book is how frustrated every American president has been with the CIA and how every American president has tried in a way to set up his own bucket shop in the basement of the White House uh, to get intelligence in a different way than the CIA can provide and how hard it has been for directors of central intelligence, all 19 of them, to work for angry presidents. I'm going to give you a couple of examples of presidential anger. 
This is President Lyndon Johnson. A verbatim transcript, and forgive me, forgive my language. Let me tell you about these intelligence guys. When I was growing up in Texas, we had a cow named Bessie. I'd go out early and milk her. I'd get her in the stanchion, seat her myself, and squeeze out a pail of fresh milk. One day I'd worked hard and gotten a full pail of milk, but I wasn't paying attention, and old Bessie swung her smeared tail right through that bucket of milk. (laughs) Now you know that's what these intelligence guys do. You work hard and get a good program or policy going, and they swing a smeared tail right through it. You think that's bad? This is Richard Nixon talking about his Central Intelligence Agency. This is a verbatim transcript of Nixon talking to his Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. This was a private, secret presidential commission that Eisenhower first created to try and oversee the CIA. The United States is spending $6 billion a year on intelligence and deserves to get a lot more than it's getting. I will not put up with people lying to me about intelligence. If intelligence is inadequate, if the intelligence depicts a bad situation, I want to know about it. I will not stand being served warped evaluations. I understand the intelligence community has been bitten a few times and makes its report as bland as possible so it won't be bitten again. I believe that those responsible for the deliberate distortion of an intelligence report should be fired. The time may be coming when I will have to read the riot act to the entire intelligence community. Thank you. Thank you. Now, how do you work for a man like that? A couple of weeks after he delivered this, Jeremiah, Nixon ordered the CIA to go to Chile and overturn the results of an election that had already taken place. Now, CIA directors have gotten orders like that before and since. And the CIA has a military ethos as well it should. And the director of central intelligence at the time, Richard Helms, stood there, took that order, saluted smartly, went back to the CIA headquarters, buried his face in his hands and said, oh my God, what do I do now? This was a crucial moment in the history of the CIA because Helms, who was later fired by Nixon at the, at, uh, when, after Nixon was reelected, had to go through a confirmation hearing to become ambassador to Iran. That was the poison chalice that Nixon handed him. And he was asked under oath, did you all in the CIA have anything to do with the overthrow of President Allende in Chile? No, sir, Richard, uh, Richard Helms said. Count one. So you all had nothing to do with the coup in Chile? No, sir, said Richard Helms. Count two. Helms had to finally uh, plead to a federal misdemeanor of failing to fully inform Congress before a federal judge. The oath of secrecy, the CIA, imposes, and the oath to tell the truth are in conflict. They always are. We have been trying in this country for 60 years now to figure out how you run a secret intelligence service in an open American democracy. We're still trying to figure it out. The proximate consequence of Watergate was that the first article of impeachment against Richard Nixon drawn up was trying to use the CIA to obstruct justice. The Watergate break-in, we still don't know who ordered the Watergate break-in, by the way, (laughs) Uh, took place in 1972. The six people involved working for the White House were all ex-CIA, two Americans, four Cubans. And Nixon thought he could hang it on the CIA. And he tried to get Richard Helms, the director of Central Intelligence, to take the fall for Watergate. Helms wouldn't do it. This finally came out, and Nixon resigned before facing that article of impeachment, using the CIA to obstruct justice. After a great period of tumult, President Ford and his extremely wily and savvy White House Chief of Staff, Donald Rumsfeld, (laughs) 
uh, decided they had to position themselves uh, for the 76 Republican nomination, and they neutralized a guy who was a potential candidate against them, George Herbert Walker Bush, by appointing him the head of the CIA. Bush, the elder, wrote in his diary that this was going to be the end of his political career. He wrote, Barry, B-U-R-Y, Barry Bush at the CIA, it's a graveyard for politics. And he told President Ford, I see this as the total end of any political future. But you know what? After a couple of weeks of becoming director, uh, at the end of January 76, Bush discovered he loved the place, the camaraderie, the secrecy. You know, it was like skull and bones with a billion-dollar budget. He loved it. Um, and, and he bucked up morale at CIA, and, and he, ha he had a good time, except when he tried to make the budget. Because the new Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, <laughs> controlled the intelligence budget. And uh, according to, to Bush, uh, the elders, uh, right-hand man at the CIA, a guy named George Carver, I'm quoting from an oral history taken by CIA that was very recently declassified. Rumsfeld was, quote, paranoid, unquote, about the CIA and convinced that it was out to, quote, spy on him, unquote, and he cut off all communication between the Pentagon and the CIA. This would bode ill 25 years after the fact. There are two types of people at the CIA, the analysts and the spies. Okay, and the analysts are really part of the heart and soul of the place. They're the ones who are trying to figure out to make sense of what's going on in the world. This is one of the great CIA analysts, John Huenziga, also talking in a very recently declassified CIA oral history about how hard it was to do independent analysis at the CIA because of the prejudices of presidents. I'm quoting. I really do not believe that an intelligence organization in this government is able to deliver an honest analytical product without facing the risk of political contention. By and large, I think the tendency to treat intelligence politically increased over this whole period. He's talking about, he's looking backward over the history of the Cold War from the early 1980s. I think it's probably naive in retrospect to believe this is a 30-year career officer. I think it's probably naive in retrospect to have believed what most of us believed, that you could deliver an honest analytical, analytical product and have it taken at face value. I think that intelligence has had relatively little impact on the policies that we've made over the years, relatively none. By and large, the intelligence effort did not alter the premises with which political leadership came to office. They brought their baggage and they more or less carried it along. Ideally, we'd suppose that serious intelligence analysis could assist the policy side to re-examine premises, to render policymaking more sophisticated, closer to the reality of the world. These were the large ambitions which I think were never realized. That to me is, is the most tragic passage of this entire extremely long book that I've written. Because the job is to know the world, to figure out what's going on. The spies are out there to steal secrets, to convince foreigners to commit treason, to betray their country, to betray their cause, their army, their creed, to figure out what's going on in the world. And the analysts are there to sift it all, combine it with open source information, like the newspaper, um, and help the president figure out what's going on in the world. One of the things I learned is if the job is in part to speak truth to power, it takes two people to tell the truth, one to speak it and one to hear it. And the CIA was not always in possession of the facts, and when it was, and it was often, presidents didn't want to hear it. And this is part of the tragedy that we are now facing in terms of how we project power in the world. You're listening to Word for Word from American Public Media and a speech by New York Times national security reporter Tim Weiner. Among his books is Legacy of Ashes, the History of the CIA. 
I think we all remember five years ago when Colin Powell went in front of the United Nations to present the case for war. And who was sitting right over his shoulder? George Tenet, the director of Central Intelligence. I've known George for a long time, uh, going back almost 20 years. When George Tenet took over as director of Central Intelligence in 1996, he was the fifth director in six years. Now, you can't run a baseball team like that, much less the world's premier intelligence service. And George Tenet was confronted with a multitude of problems, a multitude of miseries. First of all, when the Cold War ended, remember it was the end of history, remember that? Um, Everybody with more than 10 years' experience pretty much walked out the door. Game over, we won. Then President Clinton took office. And it's hard to remember this, but remember that the foreign policy of the United States in the early post-Cold War years was kind of premised on free trade, right? We were going to spread democracy by selling sneakers to the Chinese. uh, Free markets spread freedom. That was the idea, anyway. Um, The CIA, ever since the Bay of Pigs, has been exquisitely sensitive to presidential command and control. Bill Clinton met with his first director of central intelligence twice in two years. He knew less and cared less about foreign policy than I think any president since Calvin Coolidge. And this was a real problem at the CIA because the CIA doesn't you know, make up the foreign policy of the United States. It did a few times in the 50s, but um, it doesn't anymore. And they were sitting there saying, what do you want us to do? Then in August 1998, al-Qaeda blew up two American embassies in Nairobi and in Dar es Salaam. I went out there to Nairobi. I saw it. It was pretty bad. And at that point, I think everybody knew what the mission was at CIA. Because two at once is not twice as hard. Two at once is 100 times as hard. And we knew, I think we knew, that we faced, to quote the Doolittle Report, an implacable enemy. A couple of weeks later, George Tenet and the rest of the chiefs of of, uh, American intelligence wrote a secret report to the White House, and it said, unless we fundamentally change the ways in which we gather and analyze intelligence in the United States, we are going to suffer, and I quote, a catastrophic systemic intelligence failure. And the date of that report was September 11th, 1998. Well, in my view, the catastrophic systemic failure did not happen three years later. The catastrophic failure happened four years later, in September 2002, after the United States Senate asked the CIA to assess the threat that Iraq represented to the United States. And the CIA duly reported in a formal 90-plus page report what it had been saying for at least the past two and a half years which is that Iraq was bristling with chemical and biological weapons. Let's go back to the UN. There's Colin Powell, Secretary of State, the most trusted American in the world, telling the American people, telling the UN, telling the world, yes, Iraq is bristling with chemical and biological weapons. These are hard facts. This is our best intelligence. Iraq is an existential threat to the United States. And there was George Tenet sitting right over his shoulder. When intelligence succeeds, and it does from time to time, it can save lives, 
It can avert a coup against an ally. It can stop the spread of nuclear weapons. And it has done all those things. But when intelligence fails, soldiers die. And citizens. We're not very good at this. I've reached the conclusion after 20-odd years of study. We are not very good at espionage or intelligence. Why? Well, we're Americans. We're friendly, open people. Secrecy and deception are really not part of our DNA. And you've all seen this if you've traveled overseas. We want everybody to speak English, right? And to, <laughs> and to think like us and to talk like us and to be like us. And sometimes we get mad when they don't. We just talk louder, right? <laughs> we can spend all the money we can print on spy satellites. And we do, believe me at a billion or more dollars a pop. And we can build all the electronic eavesdropping stations we can, and we do, or we try. But at the end of the day, if the mission is to know the enemy, and it is, the only way to know what another person thinks is to talk to them. And that is the job of spies and diplomats and reporters. The jobs are not dissimilar. And military officers as well. But you can't talk to those people if you can't speak the language. And we don't. The Iraq study group, which was led by former Secretary of State Baker and uh, the former uh, head of the House Foreign Relations Committee, Lee Hamilton, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, the former uh, Justice of the Supreme Court, was on it. A lot of distinguished Americans were on it. Went over to uh, Iraq at the end of 2006 to kind of assess the situation since the President of the United States no longer trusted the CIA to assess the situation. And among the many things they reported was this. In the Green Zone, where many thousands of American military officers, diplomats, spies, and support personnel lived and worked, you know how many people spoke Arabic? Six. And that's not the only problem. During the Cold War, it was relatively easier than it is today for the CIA to recruit people and to accept volunteers from the other side. Over the years, the CIA had collected a little more than a dozen pretty top-notch Soviet agents in place. They didn't know what was going on in the Kremlin, but you know they, they provided looks inside uh, the military and espionage uh, apparatus of the Soviets. Why did those people volunteer and risk their lives? They lo all lost their lives, by the way, because a spy inside the CIA, Alder James, betrayed them all. Because we stood for freedom and justice and democracy. The Soviets tried to steal those words, but unsuccessfully. Can you imagine how much harder it is for the CIA to recruit Islamists today from the Mediterranean to the Pacific? It's much harder. That is the mission, but it's much harder. Why? Because of the way in which this White House has conducted the war on terror. I'm going to quote Colin Powell. Quote, the world is being, beginning to doubt the moral basis of our fight against terrorism, unquote. And that is in large part, not entirely, but in large part, because of the way in which this White House has misused and abused the CIA. The CIA is there to gather intelligence. It's there to recruit foreign agents. It is not there to torture people. The decision to use the CIA to torture people has compromised our national honor. This president has insisted over and over, quote, we don't torture. Anybody here believe that? Nobody else does either. We need good intelligence in this country. The war in which we are now engaged 
is an intelligence war by and large. It is a war of intelligence, information, and, and ideas. And we are going to win it or lose it, largely on the basis of our intelligence, our information, and ideas. We are not going to win it with stealth bombers. We are not going to win it with nuclear weapons. We are not going to win it with smart bombs. We are going to win it with smarts, which we have, but we need to get smarter. I'm going to quote Colin Powell again. What is the greatest threat facing us now? People will say it's terrorism. But are there any terrorists in the world who can change the American way of life or our political system? No. Can they knock down a building? Yes. Can they kill somebody? Yes. But can they change us? No. Only we can change ourselves. The only thing that can really destroy us is us. We shouldn't do it to ourselves. And we shouldn't use fear for, for political purposes. Scaring people to death so that they will vote for you. Or scaring people to death so that we create a terror industrial complex. Let's not do that. The next president of the United States, whomever that may be, is going to have to think about how we use our intelligence services in a new way. It is likely that whoever that president is <clears throat> will in one way or another renounce the use of torture as an instrument of American foreign policy. John McCain knows something about torture. He was tortured for five and a half years as a prisoner of war. He's waffled a little bit on this recently, but I, I think I know, I think we all know where his head and his heart are on, on that issue. But the next president is also going to have to fundamentally rethink <clears throat> how we do intelligence and how we grow American intelligence officers in this country. These people don't grow on trees. In 2004-2005, President Bush ordered the CIA to increase the number of intelligence officers, both clandestine service officers and intelligence analysts, by 50%. Boom like that. Well, you don't make them boom like that. One consequence of this is that today, fully 50% of both the intelligence analysts and the clandestine service officers at CIA have less than five years' experience. By the CIA's own standards, they are trainees. They're not good to go. The next president might want to think over the horizon about how we do this. How do we get thousands of Americans to know the language and the history and the culture of the people we're interested in? Well, if I ran the zoo, and luckily for all Americans, I don't, um, I would create a national intelligence university uh, that would be just as good and just as strong and just as broad-minded as the United States Military Academy at West Point and the United States Naval Academy at Annapolis. Now, this place would have to be partly above ground and overt and partly underground and covert. And I'm not quite sure how you do that. Obviously, you don't co-locate them. Um, and we have the means to do this. Uh, some of you may remember Senator David Bourne of Oklahoma, uh, who used to be the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Com uh, Committee. He uh, helped create in 1991, right at the close of the Cold War, something called the Bourne uh, Scholarships, which are part of something called the National Security Education Program. And these were designed to train up undergraduates and graduates in the language and the history and the culture of foreign countries. The Congress, in its wisdom, funds this program at $2 million a year. We are currently spending $2 billion a day on the military. You could even that out a little bit, I think. Uh, and it would be a good thing. Now, these are hard languages. They bring down your grade point average. 
okay? Uh, Arabic's hard. Chinese is hard. I tried to learn Chinese. I can tell you it's really hard. Uh, Hindi, Urdu, Pashto, the language of eastern Afghanistan, uh, which the British called uh, the language that would be spoken in hell. Um, uh, They're all hard, okay? But you can do it, okay? You can learn them. Uh, The British have another example to teach us, and I'm not quite sure how we get to this, but... The British in the 19th century had an empire to protect and preserve and defend. And when they went to places like present-day Pakistan, then part of the Raj, they really went. They dug in. I know a woman uh, who's now in her 70s, a British woman, born in India in the 1930s the seventh generation in her family of British Foreign Service, military, and intelligence officers. We don't do generations. We do two-year tours. Now, how do you get people to do this? How do you get Americans to stand up and sacrifice themselves to spend their lives working in dirty, dangerous places where the water's no good and there's no cable TV, um, and there are no hotels. Well, these people exist. They exist in the military. They exist in the diplomatic service. They exist among foreign correspondents. And ideally, these people would have the discipline and the self-sacrifice of our best military officers, the awareness and deep knowledge of our best diplomats, and the rat-like cunning of our best foreign correspondents. Um, And they would go out there, and they would work for their country in anonymity. These people can be found, but it's going to take a generation if the president commands it, and if Congress goes along There are Americans who will serve their country in dirty and difficult and dangerous places and do the work, the real intelligence work that needs to be done. And I assure you that that work is not buying elections and it's not waterboarding prisoners. It's espionage. If we can't speak the language, if we don't know the history and the culture, we can't understand the people and the forces that we hope to contain and control. And without that understanding, the CI cannot be what its creators hoped it would be, a source of truth to serve those in power. And if we want American fortunes to prosper in the future, we will need the best intelligence, the very best. And teaching a new generation how to speak, how to think in foreign tongues, is probably the best place to begin. I thank you very much. Tim Weiner is a New York Times reporter who has won a Pulitzer for his coverage of national security issues. He's also the author of three books, the most recent being Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA. Weiner spoke June 3rd at the Minneapolis Public Library, and you're hearing him on Word for Word from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pencava. After his presentation, Tim Weiner took questions from the audience and moderator Anita Ducor. What response have you had from the intelligence community about your book? Well, intelligence community is kind of an oxymoron um, (laughs) because there are are 16 different intelligence services and the CIA is no longer first among equal uh, among them. Um, I have gotten... Uh, roughly 100, maybe a little shy of that, uh, letters, emails, various forms of communiques from uh, present and former intelligence officers, and they have been overwhelmingly good. Um, Many of them say, you know, that was really a brutal book. Uh, It was very hard to read, but but that's what it was like. I can't can't argue with with you on that. The agency has put out and posted on the Internet an official response, which is not terribly warm, um, uh, to the book. Um, It is partially an ad hominem attack, um, and it is partially a series of quibbles. Um, 
And they are well within their rights to do that. Um, look, the agency needs to project an image of success to recruit people. And to do that, it's very hard to do that and similarly acknowledge, or simultaneously, I should say, acknowledge, that intelligence is extraordinarily difficult. It is prone to failure. It is a human endeavor. To know what someone else is thinking, there's a very high degree of difficulty in that. And we are new at this, relatively speaking. We've only been at it for 60 years. The British have been at it for 500 years, the, since Queen Elizabeth I. The Russians have been at it for at least 300 years, since Peter the Great. The Chinese have been at it since Sun Tzu wrote The Art of War 2,600 years ago. So we're learning from our mistakes. What, if any, is the organizational relationship between the CIA, NSA, and FBI? Okay, that's three different questions. Um, <laughs> well, it's the relationship. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the National Security Agency is a military intelligence agency based at Fort Meade, Maryland. Uh, it, conduct, it conducts electronic eavesdropping uh, through uh, uh, both ground stations, antennae, uh, and satellites. It is probably, all these numbers are classified, about 100,000 strong. Uh, in terms of personnel. Its budget, again, it's classified, is probably in the neighborhood of $10 billion a year. The CIA is a civilian intelligence agency. Its personnel is somewhere north of 20000 uh, Its budget is yeah, between 5 and $6 billion, i.e., 1% of the Pentagon's budget not counting the cost of military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. It is a relatively small, weak organization in the American government. The relationship between the CIA and the FBI, you know, chalk and cheese. Um, J. Edgar Hoover hated the CIA, hated the CIA, uh, was opposed to its creation. He wanted to run a worldwide intelligence organization, and he kicked it in the shins every chance he got. Um, the FBI post-2001 is trying to become an intelligence organization as opposed to a law enforcement organization. They are less interested in getting people after they commit the crime and more interested in stopping the crime before it happens, the crime being a terrorist attack on the United States. Are they organized to do this? Not really. Culturally, you know, it's still Hoover's FBI in many ways. Uh, the culture is that all you need to get the job done is a notepad and a gun. Um, culturally, historically, down the years, <clears throat> law enforcement and intelligence are two different things. The FBI agent confronted with a bad guy wants to string him up. The CIA officer confronted with a bad guy wants to string him along, okay, <laughs> and to find out what he knows, okay, because the second you bust him, that's it. Intelligence case closed. CIA officer also doesn't want to testify in open court, okay, because everything he knows is technically a secret. So harmonizing all this, I mean, really, the proximate cause of 9-11 was the failure of cooperation of the CIA and the FBI. That is a very harsh truth, but there it is. Can you make these two people play in the same sandbox? God knows people have tried. Uh, they're doing better now, but that's not a very high standard. How did the CIA incompetence contribute to our failure in Vietnam? Well, you know, the CIA was less wrong about Vietnam than any other branch of the American government. <clears throat> the CIA tried to tell President Johnson, and did tell him, more than once in 1966 and 1967, after half a million American combat troops were committed that the war in Vietnam was a political war and the will of the Vietnamese communists to persist was strong and that the war was not going to be won by military means alone. Lyndon Johnson didn't want to hear that. He wanted to nail that coonskin to the wall, to quote him. But that is a high point in the CIA's record of speaking truth to power. Now go back. Before the Gulf of Tonkin, back to the Kennedy administration. It is possible, and this is not the only school of thought, God knows, 
it is possible to see the early history of the American involvement in Vietnam, which began in 1954, okay, as a series of covert operations that spun out of control. And that crested in 1964, 10 years later, at the Gulf of Tonkin. Now, what happened at the Gulf of Tonkin was this. The CIA, in coordination with the Pentagon, had a series of covert operations going up in North Vietnam. There were two American um, warships out in the Gulf of Tonkin. There were two uh, North Vietnamese patrol boats in the region that were provoked by the covert operations going up on the shore. And on a dark, foggy summer night in the Gulf of Tonkin, the two American warships thought that they were being attacked. Then the second night, they thought they were being attacked again. They were firing at one another, at one another's sonar shadows. Or as Lyndon Johnson said some years, sometime later, those damn stupid sailors were just shooting at flying fish. But we believed we were attacked. The resolution for war had already been drawn up. And it was passed, I think, unanimously in the House and by a vote of 88 to 2 in the Senate. We went to war in Vietnam on the basis of bad intelligence. I think we've heard this before. How confident are you that James Forrestal did, in fact, commit suicide? The KGB knew him to be a troublemaker for them and a likely next president. Forrestal went mad. He was our first Secretary of Defense under the incredible burdens that had been placed upon him. There is not a shred of evidence that the KGB did him in. He jumped from his hospital room at Bethesda Naval Hospital, 16 floors. Can you talk about outsourcing the privatization of government? And I, I would assume that the person is asking this question about outsourcing our yeah. intelligence. There's a very good new book on this subject by a guy named Tim Shorrock called Spies for Hire, which I would recommend to you if, if you're interested in this question. Here's the problem. Um, as has been the case down through the years, the CIA is called upon to do many more things than it has uh, time or people to do. Uh, the intelligence budget is relatively infinite compared to the number of people, competent people you've got at the CIA to execute the missions. It is a government bureaucracy. It is called upon to do extraordinary things. The talented 10th among its personnel have largely left since the war on terror began to work in the private sector for Lockheed Martin, for SAIC, for Booz Allen, and for a hundred other companies you never heard of that have sprouted, out, sprouted like mushrooms uh, outside the Beltway. Now, let's say I'm a talented sort of mid, mid to upper level guy at CIA. I've got 10, 12 years in. I'm the equivalent of a lieutenant colonel, okay? I'm making maybe sixty-five dollars to $75,000 a year. My old boss has been working for Lockheed Martin, or fill in your corporate entity here, and he calls me up and says, hey, Tim, we got a contract. You can do the same thing you're doing now. Do it for us and make 180 grand. Okay, I'm there, okay? I walk downstairs. I turn in my blue badge. It says I work for CIA. I come back the next day with a green badge okay, that says I'm a government contractor, okay? I'm doing the same job, basically, all right? But who am I working for? Am I working for the United States or am I working for Lockheed Martin? Is it in Lockheed Martin's interest to say, hey, we got a problem over here and we got the solution and here's the contract just signed here, United States Congress? Yes, it is in their interest to do that. The dysfunctional CIA has been criticized for ages. When you were working on your book, did you find out anything good about the agency that you and the general public did not know? You know, I did. And people have read this book as saying, you know, this is just one screw up after another. You know, it's, it's brutal. It's endless. There are success stories in this book. And I tried to highlight them. 
Uh, one challenge is that this book is entirely on the record, and there are no anonymous sources and no blind quotes. So I had to work from documentary sources, from oral history, and from interviews with people I trusted. Okay? There are two, three crowning, crucial, strategic successes that I, that I try to emphasize in the book and I want to underscore here. One I've already mentioned, which is trying very hard to tell the truth to Presidents Johnson and Nixon about Vietnam. Two, the CIA contributed mightily to the process of arms control, now partially abandoned, trying to cool the nuclear tensions of the Cold War. That counts for a lot. And three, in the brief period when Bob Gates, now our Secretary of Defense, who's really first rate, um, when he ran the CIA under President Bush the Elder, who got the CIA to his credit, that was the closing months, 14 months of the Cold War, from late 91 to January 93. And they kept their powder dry. They didn't go dancing on the rubble of the Berlin Wall or, you know, marching into Latvia and Estonia, waving the American flag. Um, they kept their powder dry. They kept cool. And the Cold War, in which countless millions had died in proxy wars over the previous 45 years, ended without anybody firing a shot. Good for them. Tim Weiner is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for The New York Times and has covered intelligence and national security issues for two decades. He is also author of three books, among them Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA, which he discussed June 3rd at the Minneapolis Public Library. If you missed part of this hour's speech by Tim Weiner, or if you would just like to hear it again, you may do so by visiting our website. It's wordforword.org. When you go there, you can hear this week's show, subscribe to our free weekly podcast, and take part in an online discussion about the ideas in this hour's program as well as those from previous programs. You may also search the Word for Word archives and hear speakers such as Fareed Zakaria, who writes about the post-American world, Steve Call, biographer of the Bin Laden family, and foreign correspondent Thomas Ricks, author of Fiasco. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Word for Word. For American Public Media, I'm Melinda Pencava. Word for Word is produced by Larissa Anderson and associate producer Patty Ray Rudolph with help from Suzanne Pico. The technical director is Sam Keenan. American Public Media.